With creativity, there's some inspiration, but there's also a lot of perspiration. They do mention around, um, you know, how anything we do has, has a lot of like, as a part inspiration, but then there's a lot of perspiration. I think like with, with AI, art, and um, creation in general, it does make sense and it has helped people to automate a lot of that perspiration part while they still get to own the inspiration part or even co-create the, the inspiration part with uh, with AI. And I think it's more of a question of like, how, how well will human computer co-creation help people in a way so that that interaction is more friendlier, is more interactive? What's going on, people? I'm Sid, and welcome back to another episode of Lucid. The general public in the past few months has been a witness to the developments in AI and artificial general intelligence. And the primary driver for this accessibility is this company called OpenAI, the company behind applications such as ChatGPT, DALI2, and Autopilot. Today on Lucid, we have a guest from OpenAI who spends majority of his time working on AI models and is constantly thinking about the integration of AI into tech and society. He's also a Duke alum. Welcome to the show, Shamal. आज की ताजा खबर बेंगलुरु में रहने वाले लू और अमेरिका में रहने वाले सिड आपसे कुछ बात करना चाहते हैं संगीतकार राजस के साथ आपका स्वागत है what is OpenAI and what do you do at OpenAI? Yeah, yeah. So I'm currently a member of like go-to-market stuff at OpenAI, um, which is, again, for, for people who don't know much about the company, it's a research and deployment, AI research and deployment company. Um, and OpenAI's mission is is to ensure, you know, safe and beneficial AGI or artificial general intelligence Um and I know some people have different definitions of AGI, but what we mean by AGI, artificial general intelligence, is you know these highly autonomous systems that can outperform humans at you know most economical, valuable work, um, and, and systems that can benefit all of humanity um, and is accessible to everyone. And and you know the company's mission is we you know we believe it's very important to work towards creating safe AGI um, that is capable of solving a wide range of problems um, to help people and society as a whole. And, and so, you know, our team in particular, you know, works with a lot of developers, enterprises um, to, you know, support them along the way to help them build amazing applications on top of our, you know, platform um, and ultimately applications that can improve people's lives, productivity, and can democratize access um, to this technology so that, uh, you know, a lot of people can, you know, benefit from that. That's great. And I think one important uh, point you mentioned there was building systems that outperform humans. Uh, that's like definition of AGI. So is this with human interaction or without human interaction, the uh, products that you guys are building right now? Yeah, good question. I think right now I would call it as human computer co-creation or human computer interaction where there is still going to be human in the loop, um, you know, but hopefully, you know, we are building systems right now that are automation first and human in the loop second uh, compared to traditional technology, which is, you know, human in the loop primary and, and automation secondary. Um, so I think once these systems get more reliable, once we are able to trust its outputs, um, ultimately we'll need less and less of, um, you know, human in the loop. Uh, yeah. and, and that's where like automation can be really reliable and can learn from our feedback to constantly improve itself. Um, and you can think of like, you know, AGI in general as sort of representation of, you know, generalized human cognitive abilities um, you know in software so that you know faced with an unfamiliar task you know the system could find a solution um, mm. so it's not only limited to performing a single narrow task like playing chess or playing you know go but it's 
able to perform very high levels of tasks. Uh, and this is like in contrast to narrow AI, right? Like narrow AI, it's a lot easier to automate with, right. you know, almost zero human in the loop. With, with general systems, um, because there is expectations that it can do a lot of things, um, you want it to be reliable and, and you want to trust it before you're completely hands off, right? So it's, it's kind of a similar analogy to, um, you know, how you think about autonomous cars, right? So I'm not right. sure if you've heard about like level one automation, level two, level three, level five. Um, we, we can't directly go to level five automation, right? Mm. We need to have level one, level two, where you still have that handoff. You still have right. that human in the loop to build the trust. Once you're comfortable, then you can have like true, you know, self-driving or, you know, true mm. autonomous systems. Um, so, so that's the hope. And at each incremental step, you want to unlock various benefits uh, so that people build confidence. Because what, what happens with these technologies is, um, is once you, for example, if you release a very powerful system like that, right, it, it might take a while for people to calibrate what it means. And so okay. you want to have this step function along the way. So... Um, so that people are calibrated with how these systems function, what they can expect out of it, and how they can help it improve. Right. Like, that was really interesting. I think the framework where you put, like, right now, it's, like, human in the loop first and then automation, and you're trying to go towards the direction where it's automation first, and so slowly reducing human interaction. You also mentioned about narrow AI, so, and you said it's easier, uh, like, you know, to remove the uh, human interaction there. Is it because in narrow AI, it's, uh, there are specific constraints. It's like, you know, the range of outputs that you're going to get is from like one constraint to the other. Is that why it's easier or why is it easier? Correct. I think in narrow AI, for example, like chess, right? Um, the environment that, so essentially, you know, one way you can, um, have a computer learn chess is, is through reinforcement learning, which is, right. you know, kind of um, reward the system when it makes a good move and penalize it otherwise. Um, so the environment that there is pretty much the chess boards and, and you know the configuration of it. So, so you're dealing with a very limited sense of what an agent's perception of what a world is. Right. Um, and so Therefore, like with reinforcement learning, right, you, you still have a limited set of um, different successive cumulative rewards that the agent can gain over time and, and number of actions it can take, right? So that, that's one reason why, you know, with narrow AI, it's, it's, it's much relatively uh, easier um, to have less, you know, human in the loop as compared to more general systems which are capable of you know doing a lot of things right very interesting and coming to the applications that OpenAI has built so far like take ChatGPT, DALI2, Autopilot it all works in a similar way where you provide a prompt as a user uh, based on the output you want and you get an output so ChatGPT is text, DALI2 is imagery and Autopilot is code what are the systems behind these uh, you know, applications and how do these models work? Yeah, great question. Um, in a sense, like to understand like large language models, uh, right? Um, I think I'm assuming, you know, at least, you know, few people would have some background on what, what machine learning is. But essentially, if you think of, um, you know, GPT-3 in particular, um, it's a state-of-the-art, you know, natural language model uh, developed by OpenAI, and it's it's designed in a way to generate human-like text, um, right. you know, by essentially predicting the next word in a sequence based on the context of the words that came before it, right? So it gets very good at essentially predicting what the next sequence of words will be, and, and by doing that, it it sounds very much like a human would, um, right? And so it's essentially a machine learning model, right? It's essentially trained on a lot of data from the internet, uh, and it uses a certain um, architecture called the transformer, 
um, which which it uses to process that input data or essentially you know a wide corpus of text from the internet. And it, it looks at all of these you know tokens and it, it gets very good at predicting what will come next in, in kind of a sentence. So you give it, for example, half of your sentence and it, it can uh, you know come up with the maximum likelihood of what the next sequence will be, right? Mm-hmm. And and one 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 of the key features of large language models is they're able to perform like you know a wide variety of NLP tasks uh, with with a single model, including like you know translation, summarization, question answering, and text generation, and so on. And so, what happens when these models get very good at predicting the next sequence of words is they're not only able to complete your sentence; they're able to get good at a lot of downstream tasks like classification, uh, summarization, things like that. Um, so that that's kind of the overview of like how or what these large language models are and and why they're sort of you know good at like you know um, completing uh, you know for example part of your sentence or summarizing something um, and some people even call you know a lot of these LLMs or large language models uh, the world's best autocomplete which is which is sort of true in a sense right if if you think about calculators as you know. Uh, something that can help you with math. Um, mm. A lot of people refer to LLMs uh, as sort of word calculators, in a sense. Mm. Um, that that given you know any any instruction, it, it can pretty much follow it like a sophomore intern would complete a task. And so right. that's that's the most like powerful way to think about it. Um, so uh, you mentioned context in terms of how these models can understand context and predict uh, text as to what you might type or what you might want. So context is very abstract. So I'm guessing like one part of it, how it, how this model is learning is through reinforcement learning. Are there, uh, are there any other methods of how this context is being generated or produced? And I think reinforcement learning comes at least, you know, a lot of techniques that we use for um, aligning these models with human instructions. So to make sure that, you know, once these models are trained, how do you make sure they're following human instructions um, as correctly as you want them to? Um, That's where you use a lot of reinforcement learning as well um, to, you know, fine-tune these models to sound more human-like, and also to essentially make them follow instructions, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And going in-depth, putting ChatGPT as an example, but most of the people compare ChatGPT to Google search, and most of the people understand how Google search works. So you put in a keyword, uh, it crawls the uh, web to find websites that uh, relate to that keyword, and it shows up. How does chat GPT work where you enter a prompt, how is the output coming out if you had to explain it in simple terms? Yeah, um, I think so for, for people who are new to, you know, chat GPT or other, you know, other chat systems, it's, it's essentially a, a conversational AI, a, you know, program that, that answers open-ended questions really well, right? Compatible to humans in most cases. And, and some people have been calling it sort of the biggest technological breakthrough since, you know, the iPhone. Um, it is a very exciting um, scientific innovation and sort of a you know a milestone I would say in in, in human history. Um, and, and the way it works, I think it's it's again I, I explained GPT and large language models. It's essentially you know optimized for chat conversations. It's it's some of the similar large language model that gets very good at. You know, as I said, predicting sort of the next sequence of words and um, giving you an answer that sounds very human-like, uh, mm-hmm. but it's very optimized for for chat. And I would say it's sort of a different interface. Like today, anyone could go and use you know existing large language models to maybe build a chat interface for various things. Right. Um, I think a lot of innovation comes from the interface itself and the embeddedness of the interface in in how it's optimized to have these conversations because 
that's the most natural way humans interact, right? Like language is a very powerful thing. And if you think about traditional, um, you know, search systems, like I, I find it very interesting to talk about this example, like, you know, um, like I've been personally using ChatGPT a lot to like, you know, code and, and you know, I don't know, write poetry uh, right. for, for some of my friends, uh, write jokes and things like that. But also to actually understand stuff uh, and, and some of the concepts that are harder for me to understand. Uh, because what happens is, you know, when I Google, I, I get a lot of information. It's essentially an aggregator. Uh, you know, and then I have to go in several sources. I have to read through, um, you know, multiple links and kind of synthesize the information. I think I think the key differentiation here with these open-ended um, conversational agents is that it can synthesize information really well, given the context and given what you want um, to get out of it, uh, in a way. And so it becomes very easy for you to connect different things. It saves you a lot of time um, that you would have otherwise spent on going through the different sources if you wanted to learn about something. Um, and it, it sort of allows you to probe deeper, right? Because one yeah. way I think humans learn best is by asking you know, questions, debating with someone, talking to a friend. So just imagine with, you know, with these chat systems, you're, you're able to probe deeper into what um you know into the output of these systems and you're able to ask follow-up questions maybe something you don't understand and you ask follow-up questions and while doing that you're actually learning and absorbing a lot of information um which which can't necessarily be possible with systems that are just you know search and retrieve uh, kind of things um right. so that that's an important kind of distinction um yeah, I'm really excited about about this 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 whole thing, and you know, it, it's very interesting to even think how technology evolves uh, over time. Yeah. I think like my uh, differentiation of like Google Search versus uh, say ChatGPT is like Google Search is like collection, like you know, you get like a collection of all the websites in the world, whereas ChatGPT is like curation, like it curates like an answer like a human being, as you said. Next question is like people kind of understand the developmental cycles in like current web products or like internet products in like mobile apps or desktop apps etc how are developmental cycles in like in the ai field or like for example in open ai like or what are the developmental cycles like great question so i want to take a step back and you know kind of reiterate what makes technology like truly transformative right it's mm -hmm. it's not just a singular aspect i think but rather the extent to which it it exerts a significant and and you know differentiating impact on people's lives productivity quality of life connectivity etc um and i want to give this background just because it's very important to understand like how development cycles are are influenced i think if, you know consider the industrial revolution right like it's an it was an extraordinarily transformative epoch in in which you know new manufacturing processes kind of changed how people went about their daily lives and these changes enabled people to produce goods more efficiently and you know as a result it it, it facilitated these great levels of productivity and and that led to a lot of economic growth and so on and, and one of the the follow thing was this electric advent of electricity right with with materialized like many painstaking years of experience, experimentation, innovation, and work. And, and so a lot of these groundbreaking developments like the Industrial Revolution, electricity, um, the democratization of personal computers and internet, which, which became very accessible over time, had very tremendous impact on our lives. And that allowed us to communicate and access information in, in ways we, we never thought would be possible. Right. And we're seeing similar transformative potential today, the development cycles with AI and, and these, you know, these tools that continue to push the boundaries of what's possible. And essentially, they're influenced by reducing that marginal cost of knowledge work and acting as this force multiplier for various creative and knowledge work tasks that we undertake in our daily lives, right? Like, you know, I imagine in the next five years, a lot of boring tasks, tasks that you know, require a lot of knowledge work, um, even to, to an extent, uh, 
a base foundation of creativity um, will be augmented, not replaced completely. I use the word augmentation um, will augment human work, will make us more productive, more efficient, and will enhance our abilities to learn, communicate, and create these technologies. So ultimately, the development cycles are influenced by essentially the people, right? Who is using yeah. it and how it's impacting people at the core sense, right? Um, how is it changing people's lives and making it better, at least in 10x, um, mm. efficient, uh, both in terms of cost, time, and value that it provides, right? Um, and I think I think over time, some of these AI systems, yes, they are not perfect. You know, they they, you know, people have really tried hard to break them and, and things like that. Um, but I think these these technologies have to be iteratively deployed mm. um, to get good feedback from people so that they can be improved, um, not just by you know any single person or group, right. but overall as a community, right? And it's really empowering to shape this technology right now and be part of these development iterations. Mm. Um, so I would even urge people to think about how they can be an active part in, in development iterations. Like scientific progress is is non-negotiable. I think we have to be part of the solution. I think there are going to be problems. They are inevitable as, as part of the progress, uh, but they're also soluble. Right. So... I think I think one important thing we can do, you know, as users, as as humans, is to be part of this progress and help shape it in a mm -hmm. good direction, so that it can help future generations. It can help us right now to solve some of the bigger problems that that are still imperative. Right. I think I got like three interesting points out of it, which I want to talk about. Uh, one is you said like. All these systems, the AI, AGI systems, they're going to help boost productivity of human beings by 10x. So what are your thoughts on like future of work uh, and how people are going to adopt it? Because that's going to really impact like how uh, products are going to be developed in this space. So what are your thoughts about it? Great question. Um, I think... AI will continue to play like a very big role in automation of you know certain tasks and processes and and things that you know are repetitive or require like a, a degree of like accuracy and speed. Um, and I think not only augmenting and enhancing human work by assisting with decision making, you know, data analysis and other tasks, uh, but also like you know. Um, I think AI has great potential to work alongside, you know, humans to improve our, our overall productivity. And you're already seeing that today. I think there is sort of, as AI becomes more more smart, smarter and being able to work more collaboratively, it, it helps us complete tasks. For example, like, you know, AI-powered, uh, you know, technologies and platforms can help us, you know, design and engineer products faster, uh, help us understand, for example, customer needs faster, and provide like these personalized, tailored recommendations uh, in real time. And, um, you know, it, it sort of has a potential to redefine the meaning of work, right? Like, yeah. if it's sort of, I, I think of it as a way um, that it can be, as, as I mentioned, like a force multiplier for our productivity and how we spend our lives. Like, today, you, you can, you know, try these large language models to help you um, write something, um, you know, write a blog article or, you know, um, write a poem or, or you know, do math problems or explain you different things. Like people have been using it as a personal tutor, you know, um, as sort of a, a system that can help you, you know, summarize these, you know, difficult articles from the internet and maybe explain you um, very easily. And and so there's text generation, there's code generation, there's image generation. Let's let's focus on these three. Like how how will these three impact the future of work? I think text generation in general, it's it's pretty apparent as to how large language models have the ability to not only take a piece of text, being able to reason it, expand it, but also understand 
um, the external world and being able to reason about it, right? right? So I think the true power of LLMs is not only like just text completion, but actually being able to, you know, make, uh, for example, you know, external API calls, talk with the external world that, that it's configured to, and, and being able to take various actions that can help humans, right? A simple example is like, you know, let's say, um, you know, an email application that is currently using large language models. Um, and I've been seeing a lot of amazing demos on Twitter this weekend. Uh, you know, um, I think right after or during Christmas, people were just excited to try out the, these models. And uh, I've been seeing a couple of demos where you just mentioned that, hey, if I get an email from Dixit asking me for coffee, reply with this. Or if I get an email from anyone asking me for coffee, reply with this. Right. Okay. So it's it's sort of an, a co-pilot for your email. Yep. Which is crazy. So that's that's one way how like you know we spend a lot of times today just drafting emails, reading emails, and things like that. So just imagine if you know if a system is able to draft these email responses at least to eighty percent of what we actually wanted the email. All you have to do is edit the rest twenty percent. Still, it saves you a lot of time. Um, also, summarizing emails, right? You get like sometimes long emails from someone, and you want to summarize it and, and things like that. So that's one example, one one solid example of how text generation models can help interact, you know, help, help you know, interacting with people to, um, you know, write, write these emails, uh, essays, things like that, and improve productivity. I, yeah, the next is, I think, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, uh, that was very interesting because uh, I was seeing one Twitter thread where there's this person who doesn't know English, but all his clients are uh, English. So what he did was they used chat GPT to translate. So whatever uh, he wrote it in his native language, they would translate it into English and then send the email. So it made his life very easy. So yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think I've seen a lot of, you know, amazing builders, hackers trying to build great demos um, yeah. you know, on weekends. And that's where you see the potential of this technology and how people are using it, right? It's not just tin wrappers around these large language models, but also people are building some deep integrations um, that can optimize workflows for certain industries. Um, right. Oh, it, it's interesting you mentioned like work, workflows for industries because my friend and I were discussing where uh, this is still the you know, initial nascent stages of all these AI applications. And now it's going to be productized, you know, uh, people are going to start selling applications. Where do you think the first like wide scale usage of these applications is going to be? Is it going to be on the consumer side or is it going to be on the business side? Is it going to be B2C or B2B? That's a good question. Um, I have a feeling at least it makes more sense to me to for people to really go hard behind these boring industries like you know sales you know support and things like that and trying to um rethink about some of those applications from the ground up using ai first principles um that's where i th see a lot of potential um i think i think b2b is definitely going to be be huge especially you know i think even crms text preparation softwares they they're all i think fair game where people might um you know try and innovate using some of these existing tools and large language models and apis and so not to to gain a competitive edge and i think to really win you need those you know deep optimized workflows right that right. You're, you know maybe you know think about just customer support for a second right there's there's so many different pieces to it and it's, you know, there's so many different channels to it. So, you know, you could even take a, a piece of that whole buy and trying to optimize that using large yeah. language models so that it becomes more robust, scalable, and, and you need, you know, less human in the loop. That in itself is is, is a great um, example of, you know, how, how it can help, you know, just small companies get yeah. really good at uh, customer support. You don't um, have to hire a whole customer support team to tend to that function, definitely. You also mentioned AI first principles. Of what are they? I have no clue about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's it's similar to the line what I mentioned about like, you know, automation first and human the loop second. So you're right. essentially 
you know, just think about large language models. Like, you know, we did not have them, like, let's say five to seven years back, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so what a lot of companies did is they tried to retroactively integrate AI into their existing products to automate it, right? Okay. So they already have a system. Maybe it's rule-based, maybe it's deterministic, maybe it's, you know, just, you know, traditional software, which is great. Solves the problem, does the job, sure, requires a lot of integrations and work to make it more robust. Um, and then they try to, you know, as, as AI kept evolving, they try to integrate a lot of, you know, um, capabilities in their existing products, but it's still not automation first, right? It's a lot of retroactively trying to fit. And then, um, but now with the AI first principles, I think people have a real shot at, at redefining and rebuilding industries from the ground up using these technologies, which, which become more accessible for them to be more robust and transition to, you know, what, what a lot of people call it software 2.0 or software 3.0 uh, mm -hmm. to, to, build, to build resiliency and scalability from the ground up using systems that, that can reason well um, without requiring a lot of hard-coded rules, mm -hmm. right? Um, because that's not scalable, right? Like, um, if you think of like, you know, voice assistants, right? Um, they still have a lot of hard-coded rules. Um, and, and, and so, and, and they don't completely sound human-like um, and, and they can't reason well sometimes, but we have a real shot at making systems that, uh, you know, are more smarter, can can reason well and, and can solve a lot of downstream tasks really, really well. Um, and so those are some of the key elements of what I mean by, you know, how AI first companies would essentially be built uh, from the ground up to, you know, solve a lot of these existing problems and a lot of verticals that are currently, um, you know, poised for, for automation and innovation. Right. And you mentioned that you uh, work in the go-to-market team of OpenAI. And so you work with a lot of companies, a lot of founders who are, you know, trying to use this approach. What general patterns have you seen where, like, you know, people are still hesitant to use this? Uh, what are the uh, barriers they see to, you know, using these applications? Yeah, I think, I think one big one is, like, uh, around, you know, reliability and truthfulness right um and we know these models aren't like perfect right now they they're gonna improve over time but um i think hallucination is kind of a big problem that the industry faces today alignment is a big problem so what i mean by hallucination is um as it sounds you know sometimes these large language models um can produce outputs that are not completely truthful so right. they may sound confident but it's not completely truthful and that, that's a that's a problem um, that's kind of a barrier that people face. Uh, another one, as I mentioned, is sort of alignment where, you know, you give certain instruction um, to these systems or to these models and they're not completely good at following these outputs in a way. So, for example, you know, you ask it to give you a bullet list of points, but it maybe doesn't give you a bullet list. So that's a short example of like how, um, you know, alignment can kind of... Um, really hinders someone from, you know, building systems that are more reliable. Um, mm. so, and I think it's uh, also like, I think there's there's this thing, like my biggest worry is, is like, you know, what we call is this, you know, um, I think it's like Brandolini's law, or like it, it's mm -hmm. called as like a bullshit asymmetric principle, which states that it's much easier to, you know, create and spread misinformation than it is to right, debunk yeah. it. Right. Mm -hmm. and the, the principle could like certainly apply to, you know, you know, AI where like people might be more likely to fall for the hype or claims. Mm -hmm. um, so so, you know, a lot of people think, oh, wow, this is the next big thing. And there's a lot of hype and which could create which could distort like public perception of what technology is actually capable of doing. And, and so, you know, that's what I worry about, like is, is disinformation, which, which can be harder to fact check. Um, right. Uh, if you look like in the future of technology, like currently, we, like I think the major business model we have is like software as a service. Uh, 
So I'm guessing in the future, it's going to be like models as a service where like companies start providing models to other companies that want to build applications over it. What is going to be like the competitive edge for companies? What, is it going to be data? Is data going to be more uh, 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 like priceless, like more useful then? Like what do you think it's going to be? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about this a lot over the past few weeks and I tweeted something around this as well. I think, and this is very important for, for people who, entrepreneurs, startups, founders, you know, your viewers are interested in starting new companies in the generative AI landscape uh, and are thinking about, you know, what are the key modes for, you know, large language models or AI-first applications, especially since, you know, a lot of these models are available to a lot of people, right? So where is the key differentiation? I think in order of importance, um, and again, this is this is my view, uh, is definitely like proprietary data is is going to be is going to be key, like data that is very customized to your business, to your use case, and ultimately how you can use that data to improve the system over time to make it more reliable and useful, better with with each additional you know um, use case or user, great user interface. I think the one that really brings trust and reliability to users. Um, I think a great UX is gonna be a, a key differentiator. Um, the third is is kind of cost to serve or operationalized, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's again going to be a big thing. Like with, with you know, today, you know, copywriting is kind of a big application. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of companies building copywriting tools and, you know, of course people care about like costs as well as reliability. So like you know, what is your cost to really operationalize, to build additional features and to provide that additional value? I think fourth is gonna be go-to-market and distribution, of course. Like, mm. how are you gonna distribute that product? What are the channels you're going to go through to make that product available? Um, you know, are you going to invite just a few users to give you feedback? Are you gonna make it open to all? And, and things like that. That's That's a key right. decision that uh, you know, founders and entrepreneurs have to make. Um, I think fifth is um, network effects and sort of like, you know, community, which, which kind of sort of ties into the GTM strategy. But I think network, network effects is great. Like once you release this product, like how do you build that community around it? What are the, the positive network effects that you can get with deploying an additional iteration of your product? Um, right. and how that ties well with the other tools that are out there in the market right now. Um, and I think the last one in my mind is the the depth of integrations that you can build with these technologies. So by integrations, I mean that, you know, you can't have a very thin layer around large language model. Like that's not, you know, everyone can, it's very trivial to do that. People, right. you know, uh, have been doing that for side projects and anyone can easily replicate that if you just have a very thin layer around the large mm-hmm. language model. You need a lot of deep integrations with external services, external data sources, repositories, et cetera, to provide that additional value for your particular use case, right? right. Um, so like I mentioned, the customer support scenario, right? Uh, one example of the depth of integration could be, you know, you could take a knowledge base, uh, either public or internal, and use that, for example, uh, to build, you know, these great workflows that you can use to optimize that experience, not just for people who are managing those automation bots, but also for for end users and and for you know people in in that value chain. So I think that's that's going to be very important. Um, one example is actually interesting, and I want to mention this. Um, like in terms of the depth and breadth of integrations is, you know, imagine using large language models to augment teachers to create exam questions for students, right? Right. A very great example is a great, very great example of like how teachers can use LLMs is like, you know, you can provide a link to the the content material uh, and, and, you know, the system can fetch or scrape that content and parse into a format that the large language model can understand and then you ask the large language models to create questions from that content, given some right. preferences like difficulty level, the grade of the student, and, and things like that. And then you can use those large language models to write answers to those questions from the content. And maybe you have to edit a few answers, 
Mm. Um, but maybe those answers can feed into the future generations of those questions oh. to improve the whole process. So, right, that's right. a very interesting example of like, uh, you know, how you can build this, this, these integrations and workflows that can take existing um, sort of, you know, data sources and existing um, predefined, you know, data to improve the system over time. Right. It's interesting you brought that up because uh, one of my management professors wanted me to ask you this question as like they were uh, trying to, you know, get an answer for one question. And what they saw was that answer was not plagiarized. So they couldn't have like a tool to check if this was copied or not from a source. Uh, so how do you think like the future of education examinations is going to be? Because uh, like now there's like a lot of like content on Instagram, TikTok, social media, where like students use, uh, you know, chat GPT to use, uh, find answers and, uh, you know, give their tests. So how should like people who are in the realm of education think about, you know, chat GPT integrating into education? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and again, this is, this is my own, own personal view on this. Right. I think education isn't merely a transmission of information. That's what I believe. I think it has become much more than that. Um, I do believe, yes, AI and, you know, these existing tools do enhance the value of education, for others while it can disrupt the value of education for some. Um, And the question is like, how efficiently will we and the education system uh, and, and, you know, organizations in general be able to adapt to a world where AI tools are democratized and accessible to everyone? Hmm. I imagine, you know, like I mentioned the calculator before. I imagine when calculators initially came out, I imagine education Mm -hmm. systems would have similar questions around students becoming reliant on calculators, not being able to do basic math. But here we are decades later, and it seems like calculators have not only enhanced, you know, our abilities to do math, um, they have not hindered them necessarily. Yes, we, we, you know, today people can't do simple math sometimes. They still have to bring out a calculator. Um, But it hasn't stopped the progress in... it hasn't stopped the scientific progress and how we have progressed in our research on math and statistics and so on. And so in that case, if so, if that is true, how have educators ensured that students are still able to do basic math without relying on too heavily on calculators? So I pose the same questions to educators, like imagine these tools are available. How would you redesign or how would you think about education in a way so that people are still able to write essays, students are Mm. still able to write their content, without relying too heavily. And, and I think it's important for students, teachers, education system to recognize the importance of, you know, of course, academic integrity and to work together to, you know, maintain fair and honest learning environment. It, I think tools like, you know, um, tools like this can definitely supplement students' knowledge, right? Like I mentioned, yeah. like there's a lot of back and forth with the systems. If you're talking about like conversational agents, it can actually help students debate better, ask probing yeah. questions better. And and while actually fact checking, students can actually, you know, they can essentially grade their own uh, augmented work and maybe, okay. you know, they can better, they can get better understanding it. So that's one example. And I believe in the short term, I think systems that get, you know, systems will get better at generating content that, you know, you can't tell apart from humans. And imagine on the other end, there'd be software that gets better at detecting uh, right. content that, that is completely generated by AI. Mm. Um, but I, th- I think like medium to long term, right? Like I think you have to think about education curriculum design in such a way, for example, using techniques like problem-based learning, project-based learning, and inquiry-based learning in a way to like create more engaging and interactive learning experiences. Right. Um, but yeah, it's essentially like, you know, I'd have... I'm very optimistic about how this can help education overall. Um, helps not just students, but also teachers to create great, because the technology is available both sides of the end, right? Like, so mm-hmm. teachers can use it to, to create new curriculum, um, to make sure their, their students have more personalized approach to learning and things like that. Right. Yeah. I think like, the, like the questions you you know post to educators like those are very fascinating because 
education as a field hasn't been disrupted a lot because if you see the tests the exams it's mostly transmission of uh, information and i think the main problem is because there's like a time limit like with respect to tests there's like not a lot of things that can be done but with the use of these tools it can be fastened the whole process it can go faster so i think uh, like same as you are like i am very optimistic but but i think like the going on the other side on the side you spoke about like scientific progress in terms of calculator and how uh, computers have come all that let's talk about creativity like there are a lot of people like say a lot of artists uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know designers who say that like ai is going to you know destroy their creativity uh, because now people don't have to think about generating uh, sorry creating stuff they can just generate it what are your thoughts on that Yeah I think that that's a very interesting sort of discussion um and I've heard both sides right I've heard people who you know artists who who are taking this as a threat and it, it sort of you know um brings up these questions of like how how artists can sort of you know lose some of their creativity some of their inspiration um with tools like this and on the other side I think really artists who who have seen this as a very you know a valuable gift for them to mm. like enhance and augment their initial creativity i think one thing i'd like to mention is like a lot of with creativity there's you know there's some inspiration but there's also a lot of perspiration right mm. uh, i think this was a famous quote for someone that i i forget but they do mention around um you know how anything we do has as a lot of like as a part inspiration but then there's a lot of perspiration i think right. like with with ai art and um creation in general it does make sense and it has helped people to automate a lot of that perspiration part while they still right. get to own the inspiration part or even co-create the the inspiration part with uh with ai mm-hmm. um and i think it's more of a question of like how how well will human computer co-creation um help people in a way so that that interaction is more friendlier is is more interactive and and so that systems are able to you know recognize what they're capable of doing versus not doing um i'm not an artist but you know um at least i've seen like i've i've used like you know text image models and it has helped me actually bring some of my ideas and conceptions to life where i can just yeah. type in a piece of text um like you know a couple of days back i was you know thinking about interior architecture and i was talking to a friend and she's an interior architect and um she had never seen this technology before mm-hmm. and you know she was designing this this project for a client and i just typed in the description and it produced just amazing images of you know something that you could just take great inspiration from right? right and i feel like that's a small example of like how it can help you know someone provide that base layer of a foundation right. layer of what they can build upon hmm. that's really interesting and just to you know pull back like come to the top and think about like open ai applications uh, or the general ai applications what are the main problems you guys are trying to solve and uh, why i'm asking that is is the main uh, problem or like the main restriction for you guys to you know progress is it lack of data or like you know uh, or you know trying to optimize algorithms and models to make it more efficient like where is the main issue or the main problem um that's a great question um i think first of all as i mentioned like we're a aji company right like i think our our key mission again is to ensure we incrementally and safely deploy these technologies right. um and i think alignment is is a is a big problem right now definitely as i mentioned like the ability to make sure that these technologies are friendly to humans um they um they understand 
and can act reasonably well on the instructions that you provide them. Um, and it's a difficult problem. I think hallucination and alignment are two of the, the problems that we face today. Um, okay. I, I would say that that are sort of, you know, um, difficult from both like, I think research and empirical standpoint as well. Um, but the ultimate goal is to build, you know, general systems that are friendly to humans and, and can help humans solve a wide variety of problems. Um, and be reliable at the same time. And when the systems are not reliable, uh, being able to um, explain and be transparent about why they're not reliable back to the users so that the users know that, okay, you know, um, maybe I have to fact check certain things. Uh, maybe this is not simply completely truthful. Maybe this is outside of realm of what these systems are able to do. So being able to know that threshold when, when you know, these systems are able to complete a task versus they, they outright can refuse, they're not able to do. I think that that's also a good skill. It's a good skill for humans as well, right? Like if there's something that you don't know, you'd rather say, I don't know, rather than give an answer that sounds, you know, confident kind of thing. Um, so I think that is one thing. In terms of alignment, that's that's one other thing I want to mention that is sort of a, a, a challenge is like, um, human values, right? Like one, one thing we want to do or the community has always wanted to do is like, you know, instill these human values into these systems that we create, um, right. right? But that's a very difficult uh, kind of area because like we have to define what human values are, what they mean to us and are, you know, are they universal? Are they a property of all physical things? Uh, can we can we really differentiate something that... Um, has true human values or is simulating to have human values um and so on so that's that's with with alignment that there's there's another challenge of like how do you effectively get these models to um to understand our emotions well and to understand human values um so that it can be more useful for us and these systems can work effectively with 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 humans to augment uh in our lives right that's really interesting to talk a bit more about alignment, uh, as you said, you know, uh, making sure that you give out the answers that are fact-checked and that are truthful, that is very important. Uh, I, I want to make a relation between content creation and data. Mm -hmm. Like, there's been like a rise in content creation. A lot of people are putting uh, their thoughts, their opinions online. So. Uh, I'm not sure how this works, but like if these, uh, you know, GPT models or like AI models are taking data from the web where there's like a lot more opinions than facts, how is it going to affect the model? And like, what are the uh, things uh, that are put in check to make sure that, you know, the facts are going to be uh, showcased to the end user? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the first question. Um... The second one, I'm not too sure of. I think that's, again, a research direction that a lot of okay. people have been exploring. I think in terms of alignment, um, to kind of step back, as the systems get more powerful and capable, right, it's very important to ensure that, you know, as I mentioned, they're aligned with human values and can be used safely. And that requires developing methods or specifying goals and values in a way that can be understood by, by machines. Um, as well as you know, certain methods for verifying and monitoring the behavior of these systems, um, and so you know, at least at OpenAI and and a few other companies, people have been developing techniques for safe and beneficial AI. Um, they're training these systems to you know use human feedback um, and focusing a lot of research effort of alignments to to building you know um, models and systems that are more reliable and aligned with human values and that can look at human preferences and and tune the models um, essentially using reinforcement learning, like I mentioned before, um, to um, essentially make these models more aligned and, and overall reliable. Um, and so as, as, we, as we train these models to do these increasingly complex tasks, right, like making informed like evaluations of model outputs becomes very difficult for humans, right? Like it, it makes harder to, to detect subtle problems in model outputs uh, as these models get better. And so we ultimately, you know, ideally want these systems 
to be good alignment um, researchers in a way. Like we want to train these systems to be better at alignment so they can like self-correct themselves. They can, they can learn from itself and, and so on. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, I guess a a brief on like why, you know, alignment is, is very important and why a lot of, you know, companies and, and, uh, research facilities have been spending time in making sure these systems are, are safe and scalable. Um, because you want a lot of these by design. Like this is not something that, hey, you you you, you develop a, a really smart system and then you think about the, the repercussions or maybe there's things that you don't find and, and then there's a lot of like negative consequences. And it's so much better to think about like, you know, safety alignment at the design stage and be proactive about mitigating uh, them. Um, right. That's great. Yeah. And I, I we've spoken, uh, you know, in detail about like these AI, AI models. I want to like shift a bit and go into an adjacent topic. Like how are these, how do you think about these, you know, the shift in technology helping growth of like, you know, countries, uh, especially like developing countries such as India. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think like, say, uh, companies that are building companies in India should think about, you know, going AI first and building companies uh, uh, that are AI first rather than like say product or, uh, you know, human interaction first. So uh, what are your suggestions there? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm really optimistic and personally passionate about developing countries like India being at the forefront of these technologies and um, AI really has the potential to, you know, automate a lot of these tasks, make things more efficient, especially like in places where resources are limited, right? Yes, you have a lot of labor, but still the resources are limited. Um, One example is like in India, AI can be used to, of course, like improve agriculture productivity, uh, improve like traffic flow, manage energy consumption, and anything that is sort of resource constrained, and resource intensive, being able to optimize it so that those resources are used efficiently and being saved for future generations. Uh, energy cons- consumption on the, on the same end. I think, uh, you know, AI can really help, for example, keeping machines and infrastructures running longer and avoid like costly breakdowns, which can really help in making sure that your resources are well preserved. Uh, that's one example. Healthcare is huge, right? Like. Mm. Where in India and in developing countries, you find like access to doctors and specialists is very limited. So AI can be used for like, you know, medical diagnosis and to make recommendations for treatment, like based on patient symptoms. Uh, and maybe some of these conversational systems, although it's really high stakes to use them in medical context, it can give you at least something rather than nothing at all, right? Like for, for people who are at remote locations who don't have access to doctors and just want to know like if their symptoms are... Uh, worthy of going to uh, an emergency facility versus not, some of these systems can really help that at scale, right? Because that's, again, the 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 proximity to a lot of these facilities, especially in some of the remote villages in India, is, is very, is kind of a challenge and also cost, right? Because to visit someone physically, for example, you know, an expert or a technician, or a doctor, it's very expensive for some of these people. They cannot afford it. But with these systems that can scale and be available to a lot of people, where you're scaling things with compute and not people, Hmm. uh, you can actually reduce that marginal cost of intelligence and expertise so that it can be accessible to a lot of people in developing countries. Uh, But the flip side is like there's this, you know, of course, a lack of data infrastructure that means that, you know, Many countries may not have the data they need to they need to have to make most out of it and and that's why like you know countries like India uh, and other developing countries have to really invest in that infrastructure to make sure there is a good foundation for entrepreneurs uh for for you know government to build on top of these technologies and scale these applications um, mm. and so I think right. that's that's again a key like a, along with like infrastructure and policies uh you know, data is, is, is key to make, make this work. Um, and I think India has a real chance to be at the forefront of this technology. Mm-hmm. I think in a sense, if you look at the past 10 years, now we have 
really amazing SaaS products in India. Um, there's great talent to build it. Um, great resources in some places. With AI, I think now that the world is shifting towards this new AI-first principle and AI-first companies and industries, I think India has most of the things to shine there and can really lead the revolution of how AI can dramatically empower India's workforce, make them more productive, and bring that marginal cost of uh, productivity down um, and help 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 with India's economic growth and GDP overall. Um, mm. uh, so talking about that, like, so, you know, most like talking about talent, you know, most of the people who've been like educated right now in universities, like especially in computer science, uh, you know, there has been a slight shift where like people are learning more about machine learning, artificial intelligence, but primarily the focus is on, you know, uh, writing like programming software for uh, mobile or desktop applications. So for people who are in their twenties or like you know uh, in undergrad, like how do you think they should think about like one contributing to this field and two like uh, what are the skills they need to learn to you know go into this field? Yeah, good question. Um, I think awareness is going to be the key like any high school student any undergrad student undergrad should know about how ai systems function at a very high level because they'll be using products uh Mm -hmm. more and more that help them with with their daily tasks um that they're interacting with and so knowing at least at a high level of what that means and when and when they should not use them when and when should not they rely on them is a very important thing to uh, know about because uh, that that's a decision that each individual has to take whether you know AI can optimize their workflow can augment their creativity or they can maybe you know uh, destroy their creative in a certain way that's a human decision and so you need to be aware of what these systems are capable of doing um, I think we saw the same thing with, I think, programming in general, where like, you know, 10 years back, everyone wanted to learn to code and program. And now you're seeing this AI hype, but everyone wants to learn more about AI. And I think it has helped in a a way for for a lot of people to learn about coding and programming as it becomes more prevalent. And and now it's funny, these programs are helping you code and, and to almost like, you know, to a very very decent decent level like it's it's a very good programmer um mm. better than average probably at this point but at the same time i think to be able to truly benefit from this technology i think knowing about it is crucial ultimately the career choice depends on their passion right yeah. i wouldn't chase the hype i would chase the passion so if people are really hungry about knowing about AI, they really love how it's how it's evolved over time and some of the aspects are, you know, inspired by biological evolution and so on, they should pursue it, sure, and they will have a very rewarding career. Um, but they shouldn't pursue it just because it's a hype and, it, you know, they're, they're going for the next big thing. Uh, because ultimately, you need people that are, you know, managing these AI systems or even, like, doing other creative tasks that right. provides the domain expertise to ultimately train these systems. So it's, it's going to be a shift in how we, how we, how we see different jobs um, in the future and things like that. Uh, but my advice to, I think students and especially, uh, you know, young professionals is to invest their time in, in knowing about, uh, you know, this technology, spending some time uh, at least at a high level, learning about uh, h- how it's different from traditional software and the, the, the essence that it's not truly deterministic, how it's you know right. still stochastic and you still need your own human judgment to fact check, you still need your own human judgment to be able to give good feedback um, and so on. That's great. I think uh, we are close to time. So before we end this conversation, I have one last question. 
like taking like a 10 year time frame from now mm-hmm. w- what is your personal opinion of where ai is going to be in like 10 years from now wow uh <laughs> <laughs> i'm optimistic about agi right so I have a feeling in 10 years, we, we might have maybe something close to AGI that, mm. that, that, that we can use uh, for a lot of general tasks and something that is very reliable for a lot of different things. I think with specific domains, and this is just my prediction, in the, over the next 10 years, at least in 2030, at least... 40 to 50% of the code that people write to create software would be co-created with AI. Right. And, you know, on that line, one thing I love that Sam Altman mentioned uh, in one of his interviews is like this differentiation around like the tools that are used to create scientific progress and scientific progress itself, right? So... For the next 10 years, sure, if we get a system that's close to AGI, we'll have essentially a lot of great tools to enable scientific progress. Mm-hmm. And, and then itself, I think scientific progress will take that even further. Right. Um, but I think I have, a, I have a very optimistic feeling of like, you know, in 10 years, if you have a system that gets really good at that, right, good at our, you know, our current jobs or what we currently do, maybe we get to pursue more fulfilling things and things that we actually like doing. Right. Uh, instead of some of the boring things that we do. So maybe we spend, as I mentioned, like the inspiration versus perspiration, perspiration. maybe that can be flipped. So we spend more time on inspiration right. and very less time on perspiration that can mm-hmm. be automated. And so I see a lot of like knowledge work type of jobs being completely automated next 10 years for sure, reliably. Um, and people can pursue more fulfilling things, spend more time with their family and loved mm-hmm. ones and ultimately have you know, AI agents uh, helping them in their daily lives, whether it be, you know, scheduling appointments, whether it be writing emails, whether it be running businesses, whether it be, um, you know, maybe uh, talking to a doctor and things like that. So that's my hope. And again, I'm more on the optimistic side. And, and I do believe that like scientific progress has taken a huge leap forward with, with, uh, with AI in general. And we have a we have a great opportunity to make make that future possible